0: In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to episode 21 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Aaron, here with Patrick. Hey guys. To talk about one of the all-time great musicals, West Side Story. This is our second episode in a row covering a musical film. And if you missed last week's review of Sing Street, we highly recommend that you check that film out and then give the episode a listen. Musicals and music-related films have a special place in our hearts, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to talk about and bring more exposure to some of the best in the genre. Also this week, wrapped up the summer si- session, or season I guess, of Fantasy Movie League. And our listener, whose Cineplex goes by the name Renépolis took the crown and also the prize of a $20 gift card. Uh, the next season starts right away. So if you'd like to join the group and compete for the $20 gift card, just go to fantasymovieleague.com, search the league using Feelin film with an apostrophe. You got to put the apostrophe in or it won't come up. Uh, the password is positive and we'll be sure and link to the group in the show notes as well to provide an easier method of getting you guys signed up. Awesome.
1: And once you've done that, you may also want to consider joining our Facebook group. The discussions have been getting better and more interactive each and every week. Our listeners are having a great time chatting about movies, and we'd love to have you be a part of that. There's a link on our website, or you can just search for the Feelin' Film podcast group on Facebook and join that way. Well, Aaron, you saw something in the theater this week that we aren't covering on the show, and I know you wanted to talk about it, so why don't you go ahead and... Start us off with what we've been up to this week.
0: All right. Well, I would love to do that. I do not go to many movies. Well, let me back that up. <laughs> That's That phrase taken without context is uh, not true at all. What I should say is that since we started this podcast, I have not been able to go to the theater for a movie where I'm not reviewing it or going to be doing a podcast episode on it, for quite some time. I can count maybe one or two over the course of the last six months. So a, a being able to do that, or, or choosing to do that, was a little bit of a relieving experience for me. I got off of work a little early on Friday, wasn't expecting to, and checked movie times, There's a couple that I was interested in, found a showing of Heller Highwater. High Water, Uh, that I was able to get to. And so I just stopped on my way home and went. Um, I used to do that all the time, but when you're doing the podcasting thing and, you know, we're trying to do new releases on the week that they come out uh, to stay as relevant as possible and you don't get the opportunity to just do things on a whim like that. Everything's got to, got to be planned. So anyway, Hell or High Water is a modern Western, I guess you would call it. Um, the closest comparison to tone of the film that I could make is No Country for Old Men. Um, it's a it's not quite as dramatically dark as No Country for Old Men. There's more humor than I remember being in that film uh, in this one. But this one stars Jeff Bridges as a Texas Ranger, aging, about to retire. Uh, it's also got Chris Pine, completely different type of role for him stepping out of the captain's chair in space into uh this very, you know, poor West Texas boy uh performance and his brother is played by Ben Foster. Ben Foster's always been a favorite of mine. Um he's a great character actor. You put him in pretty much anything other than Warcraft which and uh, that one was not good for him. But um you, you put Ben Foster in almost anything and he can really act. So Uh, the story is just about these two brothers. Um, it's a heist movie. I don't want to go into much more detail than that, but I can tell you, I absolutely love this film. I like Westerns in general, so the idea of a Western, not necessarily just the old West setting, um, tonally speaking, uh, this movie did a lot of unique things, the way that it moved between drama and action and comedy, um, And it was very, very powerful performances were phenomenal across the board. And it was just it was just one of those special type of experiences that we have not seen a lot of throughout this year in the movies. Uh, Mostly we've you know, and this is typical summer is blockbusters in your fall and your winter season. You start to get more kind of Oscar fodder, artistic type of films. And I think that this one fits the bill. Uh, It's in my top 10 of the year so far. I don't know where it's going to shake out. I I really, really loved it. I highly recommend you go see this one. Uh, So Hell or High Water gets high marks from me. Um, I will say that I did get to recommend it to someone on Twitter who actually lives in West Texas. And um, I was parlaying a comment uh, from the Facebook group where somebody had said that the West Texas is basically like another character in this movie. And I was telling him that and he got really excited. And so he went to see it and he came back just raving about it saying he loved it too. So.
1: Fantastic! Yeah, fantastic. for
0: this one, I say definitely two thumbs up. Go see it.
1: <laughs> and if I know you, this may or may not end up as a minisode at some point. <laughs>
0: oh no, I think we're I think we may be past that. But uh, okay, you know I don't know if anybody out there wants to talk about it. Let me know. Um,
1: <laughs> well, well, you had me intrigued. Um, I, I like westerns uh, to an extent, but when you mentioned that that Jeff Bridges just blows your blows your mind in this in terms of his his acting. Um, that's always a a plus for me. I've been, um, loving him from (laughs) even as far back as the days of Gettysburg and even dumb and dumber to an extent. And, uh, so knowing that he's in this is really probably one of the reasons to to go see this. It sounds like
0: it is. And I know that you probably won't make it to the theater for this one, but it's one that I, I hope that you will check out when it gets on video, because I, I do think that you'll particularly really enjoy it.
1: Yeah. I've, I'm, I'm compiling a list of movies that are eventually going to make it to my um, after-my-wife-goes-to-bed list of things to watch. <laughs> That's a
0: great name for that.
1: <laughs>
0: so the other thing that I did this week is um, watch some kind of B-horror movies, I guess you might call them. Uh, my roommate is a big fan of this kind of genre. Uh, he likes monster movies, and he doesn't really care about acting and technical masterpiece uh, in the films, which is kind of cool. You know, it lines up with my view on watching movies as well. And so we had watched something earlier in the week and really enjoyed it. Uh, 30 days a night I, of night. I think it was Josh Hartnett, very highly underrated vampire film, by the way, just, it's really, really good. And so we were talking about something in the grocery store and, uh, alien versus predator came up and I was like, yeah, I love the alien series, but I've never seen that one. It just seems so you know, cheesy. I like the idea of predators, but you know, they can't, they don't have much depth to them. And he's like, no, these, that movie is like one of my favorites. You got to see it. And I said, you know, okay, cool. So let's just make dinner and sit down and watch it. So we did, we made a plan and sat down Saturday evening to watch alien versus predator. And I got to tell you, man, (laughs) I was way pleasantly surprised by that movie. The B level actors in the film did a fantastic job Um, They played their roles uh, much better than you would ever expect from non, you know, big name type of actors. And the story is just a really good one. It's it goes into depth of the lore a little more of how the aliens got on Earth, what the predators are doing here in the first place. And I I was blown away by it. Honestly, there's some depth to it that's there uh, that you can pull out of it. And so I really thoroughly enjoyed the film. I had a good time with it. I was, I was shocked to see how much kind of hatred this one had gotten. I just didn't, didn't feel like it was worthy of the low ratings that it had. And so when we finished that, uh, if you're part of our Facebook group, th- this actually transpired in real time in our Facebook group, cause I had posted that I was watching these film. And so some of our listeners were commenting and, um, one of the listeners commented on that post and said, avoid the sequel. And I was like, it's too late (laughs) because I had already pushed play on the sequel. We decided to gauntlet
1: thrown down. (laughs) It was.
0: And we had decided to watch, uh, alien versus predator requiem right after it. And, uh, not so good. I I gotta say, um, it, it, (laughs) it, 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 the first one really focuses on the alien and the predator and it stays in that zone of, you know, it stays on the fight. This one did not. This one turned teen horror slasher flick drama comedy uh, and then put a predator and an alien in the middle of it. And it just did not work for me. had a couple good scenes, uh, of course, but it it was nowhere near as good as Alien vs. Predator, the main one. Um, But I will say my final thoughts on this is just that I really love that franchise. I like it even more than I did before. Predators are Flippin' awesome, dude, and I gotta go back and watch all the Predator movies now, um, and I <laughs> hope that maybe one day we get some more Alien versus Predator stuff from better directors um, with more effort put into it, just kind of like the first one had, and I'm also yeah. even more jacked for both the new Alien movies coming out now, the one that's gonna be done by uh, Ridley Scott, the follow-up to Prometheus, and also I believe we are gonna be getting one from... The director of District Nine, who I can't remember his
1: name. Neil Blomkamp. Yes,
0: Neil Blomkamp, uh, I believe, is still on on deck to do another Alien film as well. So I'm pumped for all those, and I'm I'm just invested in this lore even more than I ever had been. So Fantastic. good good weekend movies for me.
1: Very cool, man. Yeah. What about you? Well, I uh, was into some documentaries, shocker, but I wanted to stay specifically. Into um, a specific type of documentary I was This week in particular I've been diving into some of the ESPN studio 30 for 30s
0: Olympic hangover
1: Yeah I, I, There's some truth to that Because um, I think it was after um, Our recording last week um, Before I went to bed I queued up one Called uh, like Quest for Gold And it was the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding Uh, fiasco or fiasco the um what it is the uh investigation or whatever where you know tanya harding was accused of having nancy kerrigan kind of axed or 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 mobbed down or something but as i was i've watched so i've watched that one i watched the four falls of buffalo in documenting the, the the buffalo bills four trips to the super bowl and let me preface this by saying if you guys aren't familiar with 30 for 30 these are documentary films about various stories in sports directed by a different director. And th- I think there are more than 30 at this point. I think 30 for 30 has become sort of a, a misnomer. For- are there only 30? No,
0: there are well over 100 uh, right, okay. of these. It's gone on for multiple seasons now.
1: Okay, and- yeah. So, so each, I guess each season has 30. But anyway, um, I digress. But what I wanted to do was there were several that I, several stories, sports stories that I was familiar with, and so I wanted to catch those documentaries because I wanted to personally relive and kind of get more details about things that I hadn't necessarily caught when I was experiencing experiencing them the first time. I think there was one on O.J. Simpson that I watched. Uh, of course, the Tanya Harding Nancy Kerrigan one, the Four Falls of Buffalo. But from from a from a spectator point of view, from a from a person who may not be into sports documentaries or may not be familiar with the subject matter. I wanted to see if it would be how interesting a documentary would be if I didn't know much about the subject matter. And so I picked, um, a few that I didn't really have much background on. So I watched one called, I hate Christian Leitner," about a basketball player from Duke who ha had become and still is synonymous with hatred for Duke basketball in general.
0: <laughs> Did you know that I've seen
1: that one? No, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. It's one of the few, I actually created a 30 for 30 list on letterbox of all of the films. Uh, okay. Kind of working through some of them and I, mm-hmm. I've seen that one in particular. So I great choice.
1: It, it really was fantastic. Didn't know a lot about him, and um, love the character study uh, and I love the fact that Rob Lowe is narrating. That's so fantastic. Um, I also uh, watched one called Brian and the Boz about Brian Bosworth, a linebacker from Oklahoma. And in, uh, in this this particular documentary chronicled his life growing up, uh, his, his career at Oklahoma, and this persona of the Boz that sort of became the hide to his Dr. Jekyll. And – seeing the fallout from that. First of all, seeing the hype that came from it and then ultimately the fallout that came from it. And speaking from a 30,000-foot perspective, these are really well-done documentaries. And if you're not into sports, if you're not into, uh, in particular, just specific storylines about basketball players or football players or whatever, I highly recommend watching these in general because they're great Documentaries, They're not just fanboy homages to the subject matter that they're talking about. I mean, that's there, but you're also getting just quality documentary film and real, real value from understanding people that are being interviewed and the subject matter. Uh, so these are, these are really fantastic.
0: Do you know where Brian Bosworth played his professional law in the NFL?
1: Uh, that would be your Seattle Seahawks
0: sure would he was a 12 <laughs> he was a 12 football season starting up so I just had to get that in there <laughs> I agree so, with you though Patrick like totally I I think I think 30 for 30s are fantastic if I had more time I would again pick that back up and kind of work my way through some of them heck maybe I will knowing that you're going to be doing that but it's it's so cool to see these just one shot tails mm-hmm. they're so kind of in a vacuum, you know, like it's one season, that's like the longest you would get or one game. And just all of the little minutia and history and details behind that, um, Mm -hmm. as lovers of sports and just following stats and following the, the storylines of players and coaches careers, they they provide such a great glimpse into that background and that history of them that Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree with you. I, I like a lot of them.
1: Well, and the thing is for me, because i I don't have a ton of time to invest in a two hour movie, two and a half hour movie like the one we were reviewing this week. I mean that's a, it's kind of a rare thing you have to kind of block out that time. These documentaries and documentaries in general are maybe an hour hour and a half long, so you're getting these just snapshots, you're getting these quick takes that are not so short that you feel like you've you know you you want more but they're not so long that you feel like you have to invest a ton of time. And and in general, that's why I like documentaries, because they're just long enough that I feel like I'm getting a complete story, but not so long that I feel like I have to burn a ton of my time to to watch them.
0: Very cool. Well, should we get on with it? And talk about our musical masterpiece that we watched (laughs) this week?
1: Indeed, let's do it.
0: So I know that you are a big fan of this film. You chose it um, for the most part. I had never seen it, full disclosure. Um, I I was actually surprised. I'll say my first thoughts is, are this, that I was very surprised how much of the music I knew, having never seen the movie. Songs like I Feel Pretty and uh, In America, or is it just America, the title of it? Just America. Um, things like that. I was familiar with even some of the other ones, uh, like tonight, I believe I'd heard before. Now I am a musical fan. And so I've got, you know, uh, playlists that include, you know, show tune motion picture soundtracks and such. So that's probably part of where I've heard these things. Um, but I was just very surprised at how much I knew about this movie without having ever seen it. Um, and that, that just goes to say something culturally, you know, about the staying power of a film. What I knew going in, though, mostly was that this was going to be a kind of retelling of Romeo and Juliet. And sure enough, you know, that's definitely kind of what we got if the Montagues and Capulets were, you know, dancing down the streets of Italy.
1: And And snapping their fingers. (laughs) And
0: lots of snapping of the fingers. Um, So my, my general thoughts on this are I really enjoyed some of it. I liked most of it. I was put off by some of it. Um, And overall, you know, it was a pretty good musical for me. Um, But this is a movie that won Best Picture. Uh, It won 10 Oscars. This is number 41 on AFI. That's the American Film Institute's last top 100 list in 2007. Um, There's only a couple musicals above this one. Uh, on that list. So, I mean, that's that's pretty big. 41 of all time is what they're saying this movie is, and I just it wasn't that for me. Um was not that that great for me. It's good. It was really good, but I didn't have that kind of connection
1: to it. Understandable, man. And uh going into it with the feeling film influence uh with me I I looked at it, I tried to look at it from a non-fanboy perspective. It was a a musical that I grew up with. It was in the pantheon of musicals that I was introduced to along with like Oklahoma, Bye Bye Birdie. Um, When I was in high school, of course you and I, because we've known each other from high school, you know that I did some musical theater. I have a relatively decent singing voice, not one that would ever get me into a (laughs) like a a singing institute or whatever you're
0: being too modest you have a great voice
1: (laughs) but I developed a love for for musicals from 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 a performance aspect of it from this idea that if if we lived in a world where we could just randomly break out in song that would be kind of cool and this is what it would look like so looking at it as an as an quote unquote adult or as someone who is looking at it from a movie standpoint, of course, um, I had some of the same kind of response as you did. I I kind of thought, wow, this is a two and a half hour long movie. That intro was five minutes and there was nothing happening. There were no credits. There was just an overture.
0: That was a big part of my problem to be honest with you. That put me in a place like it set the movie up for me to be like, I don't know. I was ready to get into it and I had Mm -hmm. to sit there for five minutes and I, I literally fast forwarded because I thought that my my thing was broken. I had down, I had gotten the movie <laughs> downloaded a copy of the movie that I was watching from someone and I was I was unable to like I, I thought it was broken. I really did. I thought it was like <laughs> not supposed to do that and I was like where's the image? What is yeah. going on? And so I'm sure that there's some crazy artistic value behind that or some reason and it probably is tied to kind of the psychedelic dream sequences that we get later in the film, but it did it did impact how I started off watching the movie,
1: for sure, and, and it did for me as well. Even having a history of it and knowing that that was that was there, I'd forgotten about it. Um, I began to do some research before watching it, and I came across a few articles and some some trivia on IMDb indicating that Stephen Sondheim, in particular, the guy that wrote the lyrics for the for the musical. I think either he or or Bernstein, the guy that wrote the music, didn't like some of the way that the movie adaptation differed from the Broadway production. For instance, when Sondheim wrote the lyrics for um, a few of the songs, he wanted to drop a couple of swear words. I don't know what his motive behind that. Maybe it was to create more impact of the song. But because of censorship... Back in the day, for for movies, this was he had to change lyrics. So there were some significant—I say significant. There were some. There were some relatively um, big changes to some of the lyrics. Not necessarily changing the meaning of the lyrics, but dumbing them down. There was um, if you watch the if if you ever get a chance to watch the stage production of it, the original stage production. Some of the numbers are done in a different sequence. For instance, Officer Krupke, uh, by the way, there are spoilers coming ahead. So <laughs> we always forget to do that, but you know, if you're if you've been listening, you know. But the but the Officer Krupke number was actually done after the fight sequence under the under the bridge. But the director wanted to create a rising tension throughout the throughout the movie and he wanted to be able to Keep that tension going, and so by putting Officer Krupke earlier, a lighter version, a lighter song, near the beginning or near the first act of the of the musical, it it helped kind of solidify that tension. And what that told me was that, first of all, the directors wanted to make a movie with a musical as its source, and I think that they saw the value of the plot and the themes that were associated with it as being something at the forefront. But what I also love is the fact that they didn't skimp on the musical side. In other words, the choreography was just incredible to me. I mean, it was big, so many big sequences of, of of dancing. I read that the director wanted to keep the actors of each individual gang separate on set. He wanted to encourage them to play pranks on each other while on set to keep that kind of us versus them mentality and you know I don't know a lot of directors of movie musicals I mean I don't I don't delve into that but that's really interesting to me because here's a director and a creative team that are trying to maintain the integrity of a of a story on an equal level to the performance aspect of the musical and so knowing that going in I enjoyed it for different reasons. It still had the same kind of hiccups that that you mentioned. That opening sequence, I think it didn't. Tra- that doesn't translate well when you're sitting on a couch versus when you're sitting in a in a in a, in a theater waiting for you know a show to start. Because a, an overture is five minutes. I mean, that's just how it is with musicals. You have a five minute overture and you have a curtain that's just there's nothing happening. And so you're used to that as an audience, but when you're watching it on a television or maybe even in a theater, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom and get some popcorn. I'll be back when this thing is over. Uh, It is a little off-putting, but I was glad after that sequence, when things started getting going, I got back into the movie as a whole and and started to enjoy it.
0: Well, I'm glad, and you're not alone. I know that I am in the minority with my you know, three and a half out of five star rating. I've already received one comment from a listener saying, I hope you're going to justify that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And if you know us, you know that, well, I probably won't fully get to justify that because we're not going to talk about all the stuff that I didn't like much more. But the one thing that I, I do note or that I think would have made it work better for me is my, my preference when we're talking about adaptations from, uh, stage to screen is I want it to be a screen. Like I want it to be a movie. And I did. That's part of what took me out of this. I felt like I was watching a filmed version of a stage play in a lot of ways. Um, And so I honestly think that if I went and saw this, you know, at the theater, that I would like it a lot more. I would enjoy that experience a lot better. Because the way in which the choreography is done, um, the way in which the dancing happens, the way that the fighting happens, and, and they're not actually going through with punching each other because they're, they're kind of dance fighting, things like that. Seeing that on a stage makes sense to me. And it would feel like it was in the right place. But in a movie, I'm expecting a punch. I'm expecting these other things to actually happen because we're adapting. And so, and and so again, we talk a lot about expectations. Part of that is my expectations going into it. I wasn't expecting what I got. And so I was thrown off. So future viewings could be different, but, um,
1: yeah. So as a side note, if, um, another one of my favorite movies, musicals is uh, newsies, the Disney produced, directed, whatever. And this would have been sort of, that wheelhouse for you because this was a movie musical that was made to be a movie. It wasn't made to be a stage performance. So you see, um, young Christian Bale and company in these great dance sequences, but there are punch literal punches thrown. Everything is there on set pieces, but there's also on location pieces. I think in some of that, and you could tell, if you put these two side by side, just from a visual point of view, you can tell what was made for film and what was made for a stage. And, and I agree with you that when you watch like a Rodgers and Hammerstein movie like Oklahoma or Guys and Dolls, it's, it's hard to get a movie aspect of it when you're watching something that was built for the stage, especially when you couple that with a musical style. Because traditionally, I don't know of a lot of people that break out in song randomly after, you know, a conversation with someone. I know I don't. I'd like to sometimes. But for a lot of people that I've worked with and that I hang out with, that's either inappropriate or really weird. And so you have a lot going against a movie like West Side Story already. But one of the reasons that I really enjoy it is that I think in several ways on a personal level, I feel like it overcomes those things especially when you get into the probably the middle third of the movie leading into the big second act. I think it really finds its footing. And at that point, it becomes entertaining. It becomes the movie that I want it to be.
0: I would agree with that timing that you're referencing there as to when it starts to kind of get to be what it's going to be. And it starts picking up for me as, as well. We let's Let's start really, I guess, by talking though about the, about the choreography that we both mentioned, because for me, I believe that's probably the best aspect of this film is the dancing and the choreography. Um, the music's great and, and it's a musical, so it better be, or it couldn't have one best picture, but the choreography in this thing is unreal. Um, that opening sequence, (laughs) you know, like it particularly or not like it particularly aside, it's unbelievably cool unique and visionary. It is so stylistic. Um, it's got this incredible athleticism built Mm -hmm. into the ballet of this, uh, of these sequences. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in a movie or on a stage before or after seeing this. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that's part of what the appeal here is, is it's, it's truly something unique. And I've also read about how the director, uh, you mentioned how he kept them separate and really was trying to breathe. I think that's fantastic, by the way. Um, But this is another case of uh, actors dancing, kind of like in Singing in the Rain. There's stories about uh, people's feet just like breaking because of how hard the dance numbers were. Um, This one has similar type stories Mm -hmm. where... They When they were doing those uh, scenes of running and climbing these, you know, 15 foot f- tall chain link fences all at once and then jumping down them like those are actual actors. These aren't stunt people. And doing that over and over and over, getting like 10 to 15 people to do the same thing with timed to the music correctly is is unreal. I mean, I, I can't imagine the amount of work that must have gone into this. And it shows. I mean, it's a. It's a labor of love, you know, on a lot of parts and a labor of, of pain and, and a lot of, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of frustration too, but there's just something special about the dancing that no matter what I was feeling about the dialogue or the story aspects and how things were playing out, um, anytime they started dancing, I could be transported and just completely, let myself get immersed in the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, it's, it's so cool. Um, it's what I will remember most about this film forever.
1: And, and, and you're exactly right. It's, it's a, you, it's, it's like when you, when you, when you listen to a, a <laughs> if you can't hear me snapping in the background, <laughs> definitely an iconic thing. Snapping and whistling are two iconic non-verbal gestures that that happen in this film, which is great. But, you know, I think about stand-up comedians, and I think about when we watch a stand-up comic, we hear them tell these stories, and we feel like they're just talking to us. They're just, you know, telling us these stories, and we're laughing at them, or not laughing at them, but most of the time we're laughing because they wouldn't be on TV if they weren't funny. But we fail to just, we we don't think about the fact that this is hard stuff, that they come up with this material that one joke leads into the next, which leads into the next. And when I think about the choreography in this, I forget about how hard it is to manage 30 plus people in a room. I mean, you take that opening sequence for instance, but I was really drawn into the, uh, the dance at the gym where you had jets, you had sharks and you had other spectators and you had them doing their thing And the Puerto Rican, almost like these dance-off type things. You had the two circles of Puerto Ricans and Americans doing their own separate things. And then you have um, Tony and Maria find, you know, catch each other. And then they go into their own personal thing. And in the background, you see the, the, uh, the dancers change to match their little slow dance moment. And then as they come out of that little dream sequence thing that they're doing the dancers start changing their movements and then they become back fast paced or whatever it is watching that as as just an audience member i i don't think about how hard that would be to not only come up with in my head as a choreographer but to execute with that many people and i i haven't seen many musicals recently but I don't recall many musicals that I have seen as having that same caliber and that same immense complexity of of dance sequence of dance of dancing and and choreography in general. Um, and that's that's incredibly impressive beyond just the music and lyrics that that the movie's so famous for.
0: Well, I think we do see complexity in dance quite a bit in the best musicals, but what we don't see is it on this Th- with this scope of a n- number of actors And number exactly. of players You know we right. see it with a Gene Kelly Or you know a single guy uh, A single one or two people Dancing around uh, Doing incredible things What we don't see is the the choreography, choreography, choreography of Two different gangs of people Like you said inter- Interacting with different styles it, it's, it's, it's so well put together um, mm-hmm. The dancing tells A story here that I want to see and I want to, to learn and know and follow, um, more right. so than the dialogue, frankly, for me.
1: Uh, the, well, and, and, and you, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead finish. If you, I and, if well, you.
0: I was just going to say that I, I do really love that dance scene in the, in the gym when Tony meets Maria, not that part of it, but the beginning of that where, you know, they're trying to get them to come together and the school administrator, I don't know who he was, uh, if he was a principal or something, but he, he's like, well, let's just do the circle dance and, you know, <laughs> brings them into the circle. And I, I just love how it's one of my favorite scenes of the film because one of the, one of the jets steps out and is like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do what you're asking. And then, uh, Nardo comes out as well. And of course we see the gangs follow suit, uh, mm-hmm. to then everybody gets in the circle and they start walking around the circle. And I'm thinking to myself, man, So there is some honor in these guys. Like they, they are able to put this stuff aside. They're going to be able to come together and like, at least get through this. And then they don't. And then then they don't. And then they both immediately grab their own girl from the, you know, the angled uh, spot and not the, the one for the opposite gang that's in front of them. And it just, it's, it's a brilliantly done scene. And I love the kind of switcheroo that happens there from the expectation Mm -hmm. that maybe you're actually going to get to see them go through with it. And then they don't, but sorry, sorry to get off topic
1: a little. No, no, you didn't. And you mentioned the art of storytelling within a song Mm -hmm. and how, um, for me, G officer Krupsky, Krupsky, wow. G officer Krupsky was one of those highlighted moments for me. Um, one of the things that, that I, I find very valuable in, in stage performances, plays or musicals or otherwise is the, is the effective use of blocking which is a technical term, I think people know what that is. It's, it's the ability to place actors and props you know, in, in certain places so scenes don't feel cluttered, so you can see everybody. And on a stage, you don't have a camera that can cut into a person's face. So you have to be able to block the scene in a way that it stays interesting the whole time throughout, uh, throughout a scene, whether it's done through a song performance or whatever. And when we, when we see that number played out, and we have those close-ups of the, the different moments where, um, where the gang is portraying, like one of the gang members is portraying a judge or he's portraying a social worker or he's portraying a police officer. We, what I noticed was the blocking and the ability of the different levels of the actors being placed in certain ways to create an interesting scene because there wasn't a lot of dancing in that, in that number there was just a lot of placement of actors during the during the verses of the song. Whereas the chorus was like all bombastic and dancing and this, 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 and this. But the verses were very tight and honed in. And so I would imagine that the choreographer was saying things like, okay, here's how I want you guys to be placed to create this scene like like you're in a courtroom or like you're in a psychiatrist's office or like you're talking to a social worker. And then with that... You get camera work that allows you to see the expressions on these characters' faces. So you get these weird, hilarious, satirical facial expressions of what a judge looks like or a cop looks like with these just grimacing faces or a social worker who's nervous or something like that. And you get personality and you get that story that they're trying to tell and you're entertained as well. So I found myself kind of smiling and and grinning and at the same time understanding what they were trying to say from a story standpoint. And, and I like that, that number quite a bit.
0: I do too. It was uh, a lot of fun too. And I think I can see why, you know, you mentioned how it got moved up in the uh, sequence of the film. And I can see the, the decision behind that, why that would be made. So another one of the biggest kind of themes or main things going on in this film, aside from the Romeo and Juliet, uh, part of the love story is how this story focuses on race and culture. Uh, you know, it's, it's two gangs of immigrants, neither of, neither of which are, I guess, born in America, I guess, in theory, Uh, we don't know. Some of them probably were actually born here, but they're immigrants. Nonetheless, their parents have, have come over from various countries, whether it's Europe or, uh, you know, Puerto Rico. And, the theme goes throughout, right? That that's that's kind of why they're fighting. They're both trying to carve out their little piece of home or territory, the little piece of life that they can call their own here in America. Um, it, it, it got me. I just went. I just had a thought. So I have a question because one of my favorite movies uh, is, gosh, what's it called? Is it called an American Tale? <laughs> so it's about Fivel. And he's a yeah. mouse. Yeah. A um, is that it, it's starting name. to feel like maybe it's similar, but it, it, it has a lot of similarities. <laughs> you know, it's about immigrants coming over and just, um, there's a song, there are no cats in America and the streets are filled with cheese. And for some reason that triggers in me when I see them dancing and singing about things. And there's a, there's a line early in the film where one of the, one of the gang members says in America, nothing is impossible. And they start off with that by setting that tone. And so despite the belief that they have that, you know, anything is possible in America, they're still fighting here instead of trying to carve out their own path separately and just ignore each other. Uh, I, so what did you, what do you think about the message of the movie? Because if there is one uh, outside of, you know, true love above all, uh, it's it's in the race and the culture depiction that we see here
1: yes it is and um taking if, if i were to come up with a big idea about this movie musical this is a music movie musical that is very layered there are layers of themes there are layers of characters in terms of what we see is not necessarily what we get and there are you know layers of 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 music and lyrics all this a lot of dissonance and and stuff that's conflicting. What I see, though, is in addition to the message of racism, there is a sense of fighting against where you came from to be what you want to be. And this exists, I think, in every main set of characters. Yes, we see the PRs, the Puerto Ricans, fighting because of where they come from and they're not accepted as Americans, even if they are born here. America, the song itself, lyrically s- is so great because we, we see optimism and pessimism just back and forth, juxtaposed against each other. Um, reality versus fan, re- idealism versus realism. But there's also the, the complexity of, of the Jets, you know not only fighting their turf against the sharks but also fighting against the establishment of the police department like the I don't remember what the captain's name is it wasn't Krupke but it was his his boss or whoever you know he emits a sense of of real hatred towards the PRs racially speaking but he doesn't have much more respect for the jets in fact i think at some point he almost considers him his kind of his weapon or his his lackeys like yeah you guys can take care of this for me you know I can get a promotion and you guys can have your streets back and so they're sort of just used as tools and I think the the PRs the Jets um, you have Maria and Tony are trying to get away from historically who they are at least fighting against that And at the same time, trying to become who they are um, as individuals, as as groups of people. And and, and we see a sense of internal fighting, like within each one of them, but also external fighting because they're all fighting to be something more than who they are sort of depicted to be or who they're stereotyped to be, Um, either because of where they come from or who their parents were. Or who they formerly were. Uh, and and that's, a, that's, a strong, that's a strong message. It's one that I think is hard to depict in a musical. Because you're trying to be serious. And you have somebody throwing a ballet type punch at somebody. <laughs> and again, I think that's where the music helps. And the lyrics help with that. But it's, it's a challenge. That kind of theme... Uh, in the in the world where if you watch this in, the, in a day when you have movies like crash that exist or movies about apartheid or the help <laughs> it's hard to take a musical that has this kind of message very seriously because it almost can come across as somewhat preachy in some ways and um and you know I, that could be a product of the fact that it was done in the 60s and not in 2016 you know
0: oh for sure it could and it's funny that you mentioned preachy because that is something I pulled out of this. And oddly enough, it was, it's one of my favorite characters in the film, uh, that is kind of preachy. And though his dialogue could very well be seen as, well, duh. Um, in fact, I don't know if I think it was Roger Ebert, uh, who wrote about this character. He had, he was saying that Ned Glass's doc, uh, is one of the most authentic characters in the film and he said but really has a racist ever walked into a movie and been converted by a line of dialogue well no <laughs> of course not um but ned has such great things to say you know at one point he says you kids make this world lousy when will you stop and another point he says weapons you couldn't just play basketball yeah and you know he's 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 a jewish uh candy store owner so again another racially uh immigrant culture that is here in this New York setting. Um, and yet he's trying to bring a peace and he's trying to broker this peace and to, to calm things down. Um, he's that, that voice in the story. He's almost like the Martin Luther <laughs> of <laughs> of this movie, um, preaching nonviolence and preaching non-hate. Mm-hmm. And so I resonated with that quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Um, his, his character was one of my favorites too. And it was a surprise character, especially coming, coming back the second or third, you know, the most recent time of watching this, he didn't stand out to me because he didn't sing, (laughs) he didn't dance. He was a character. He was a, a dialogue giver. You know, he was one of these people that you felt like you could have been written off as someone who was just there to, you know, they needed a candy store owner because you know, they couldn't just walk into a candy store that wasn't owned by anybody but I love, and again, I, having not seen the stage performance of this, like anywhere live, I don't know what his role is in, in the stage performance, but if it was amplified, it was amplified for good reason, and it, it worked really well.
0: Oh, agree. 100% agree. And the other thing about race that I found interesting about this film is um, that in, in it's kind of relevant to our culture today when... Um, We constantly are dealing with articles coming out about how a movie has been whitewashed or um, the term brown face gets brought up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a film that experienced that we have a stunning lead actress, by the way, Natalie Wood, um, who I I got to tell you, the cool thing about watching these films for me is just seeing someone seeing a woman so elegantly beautiful with zero sexualization about her. Um she's just beautiful. Uh and and it does that without needing to show us any kind of skin or uh sex scenes or any any anything even remotely hinting at that kind of stuff. Uh, and I I miss that. <laughs> I'm from the 50s and the 60s, the 40s. You know, once we hit the 70s, things started to to trend the other other direction. <laughs> um and I just I I really picked up on that and Uh, I miss the way that women used to be portrayed and used to be respected uh, by culture as a whole, by our society as a whole. Um, But Natalie Wood is an actress who is not Puerto Rican. She's actually Russian. (laughs) And she plays the primary, you know, protagonist here, uh, female speak wise, the Juliet, so to speak, from Maria. Um, She also didn't do her singing, by the way, which is an interesting little tidbit. Uh, It was dubbed. So
1: But she you know. does have a good singing voice. They didn't know until after she laid her 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 voice down whether they were gonna use that. So it wasn't it wasn't like with uh, Audrey Hepburn they knew that she couldn't sing and they just used somebody else's voice in My Fair Lady. She had a legitimate shot at actually doing that. But yeah. they just chose to use somebody else.
0: Oh yeah. I, I like her quite a bit. Um and I just I found it interesting that, you know, from what I was reading about the film, you know, a lot of the actors uh, were brown makeuped, uh to make them all look more Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the best performance in the film, in my opinion, is uh, by Rita, the actress that plays Rita. Uh, and that is, I don't know why, I don't remember her name. Hopefully you do.
1: Moreno. Her last name is Moreno.
0: Yeah. Rita Marino. She, I guess she doesn't play Rita. Rita Marino is the actress that plays Anita. Right. Anita. It's that Eta part, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's messing me up up. Um, but, but Rita is phenomenal actress and she actually was uh, Puerto Rican. Uh, and she just, she does such a fantastic job in this film of evoking honest emotion. Um, some of the other scenes, even with Natalie Wood, you know, I, maybe it's because I'm just over the Romeo and Juliet love story side of this kind of aspect of the, you know, the love at first sight. We're in a black hole tunnel, psychedelic across the room. And now I would die for you stuff right. that it's, it's hard not to overact that when that's what you're given. Mm-hmm. But, um, Rita and her scenes as Anita, she has some of the most powerful scenes in the movie, particularly one that I, I, I hesitated because I almost would have called it a connecting point. Um, but it was painful for me, <laughs> and I, I didn't know if I wanted to uh, to consider that the the most impactful scene in the movie. But it's darn close, and that is when y- you really see the racism come out. So, you know, the whole film, they're fighting, they're wanting to go to war, and they're trying to to get the turf from each other. But it's in this scene that, for me, it is amplified to its highest point, and that's when Rita comes into the is at the candy store. I think it's a candy store. I can't remember if it's the candy store, but it's, it's Rita comes into wherever the jets are after Tony's been killed. And she's coming in because she wants to broker peace. You know, she wants to say, let's put this behind us. And what she gets is attacked. She gets thrown slurs at her. Um, she's physically abused. She's grabbed and groped and thrown around. They make fun of her language. Um, and all of this, while she's doing nothing, but trying to save her own friend's life. She's, she's prevented from doing that. Um, because she knows that she knows going after him. She's trying to save him. She's trying to tell them so she can warn Mm -hmm. Tony. That's what she wants to do. But instead his, his gang, his so-called friends prevent that from happening. I guess. So it's not after Tony's death. It's before Tony's death. I'm sorry. It's after Bernardo's death. Um, They prevent that from happening because there's so much hate in them for these, these people. And there's just no reason for it. And I got, I got actually uncomfortable watching this scene. And then Rita, you know, in the end, Rita just is screaming and crying. And and she's like, I'm done. I'm done. I am now I am filled with hate. I have gone from being compassionate and loving. But because of what you have done to me and shown me now, I am filled with hate as well. And I don't care anymore let let come what may um and it's just that to me that's more tragic than the love story death aspect of this film
1: absolutely rita is um her character of anita is so strong and she has no problem standing up to her boyfriend bernardo and it's funny at first uh, particularly the scene after america when they're getting ready to go to the war council and he says uh you know, he says, Well, I see you later. And she goes, That depends. Will you, you know, will you just avoid this war council? And he says, Why can't I have both? And she goes, No, you can't have both. And it's it it's very playful, but we see her strength kind of coming out there. That scene that you mentioned in particular of her with the with the Jets, I was reading some trivia on that, and the uh, when they were filming that she was reduced to tears when she was harassed uh, and was was nearly raped by the Jets. Is It brought back memories of when the actress was raped as a child. And when she started crying, the Jets immediately stopped what they were doing and tried to comfort her uh, while pointing out that the audience was going to hate them for what they were doing. So you want to talk about a real performance that goes beyond just being uh, dramatic. I mean, this came from a personal place of hers. And I mean, I can see why this was almost a connecting point because we got we got some real stuff there. And um, again, this is this is why the as the as the movie progressed, this is why it got better for me because it became important. It became less about choreography and about dance sequences, although those were there. And it became more of a movie. It became more of a plot-driven story. And and I love that it elevated itself beyond just Romeo and Juliet. Because to me, that was source material at that point. It was a launching pad. And it, it had the boldness and the risk to, to tell a bigger story about racism and about misunderstanding and what that can lead to and how that changes people. Uh, and I think that um, Anita's character is one of those that embodies a lot of that.
0: Yeah, she does. And and that's actually that's a really cool story. I'm glad you told that and found that piece of uh, history there because it makes it not only more tragic, but it makes it redeemed. Um to me to know that these actors uh it, it make the, the jets performance it it, it it amplifies the jets performance for me as well. Uh because knowing what knowing what they knew, they had to act as they did. And now knowing that they had compassionate hearts for the real, the real life actors um, who didn't want to do this to her, you know, they didn't want to put her through this. They had to act as well um, to do this. And so, yeah, that's a, that is a very phenomenal story. And um, it, it's certainly one of the, the top couple scenes that I will remember forever coming out of this. Uh, so are there any other main scenes you wanted to mention and bring up before we do connecting point? I, I do want to, I do want to get our favorite songs at some point as well.
1: (laughs) Okay. I do actually, uh, my favorite song is is the quintet. It's essentially, I mean, it's called quintet, but it's, it's the, it's the stacked vocals and music of jets, sharks, Anita, uh, Tony and Maria leading up to everything that was about to go down with the rumble and everything. Um, there's a, there's a book that, um, called, um, it's, it's a long title, but the beginning of it, something, something's coming, something good. And it's about the, the, the music and lyrics of Side story and how they help to elevate the, the overall theme of the, um, uh, of the movie. It's by Misha Burson and she's talking about this particular number. And uh, I'm I'm just going to quote her because she says it better than I do. She says, In this uh, tumultuous prelude to the Rumble, Bernstein gives all the youthful West Side Story figures a magnificent outlet for their mutual anticipation. From different corners of the neighborhood come the sounds of ferocity, bigotry, adoration, lust, a chorus of clashing hopes and fears. What in the balcony scene was a rhapsody becomes something else entirely here, a call to arms. A prayer, an erotic promise, and then she goes on to talk about Bernstein's dissonant sounds, where he has like double time music right on top of triple time music. Um, I'm I'm not a musical, you know, guru. I don't I don't know a ton about this stuff, but I knew enough when I was in college. I took a class, and this particular song came out um, as an example of of the great use of creating various time signatures on one song and how that worked to create a sense of of conflict. And you have all of these characters singing about something entirely different. And everything is tied into the word tonight. So tonight the Jets and the Sharks are gonna battle. And they're going to get, you know, the Jets are saying the sharks are going to get what's theirs and vice versa. Tonight, uh, Anita is going to get her kicks. Uh, you mentioned that <laughs> Natalie Wood, we're, you know, we, we, we're, we're missing that time period when women were not overly sexualized, when their elegance stood out. Well, <laughs> Anita is not that. She is clearly unapologetic about her sexuality. And her portion of the song Emphasizes that like she's gonna she's gonna have some fun after the rumble tonight and then you have of course Maria and Tony uh, that When they're singing their portion of tonight, they're talking about they're 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 ready to see each other They're ready to start this new life together Knowing that about the song Coupled with just the again the complexity of how it's written um, It sounds chaotic But it's done for good reason. Like it's it's an organized chaos, and it's one of those things that's it wasn't done accidentally. It 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 may sound quote bad, may sound like not harmonious, but that's the point. It's not meant to sound that way. And at the same time, there are portions of it that do sound together. And just it's a it's a brilliant piece of of music. And I think Sondheim and Bernstein really knocked it out of the park. I love that.
0: Well my favorite song is tonight. So, uh, these two are actually as typical movie musicals and, mu- and stage performances do there's reprises. And that's essentially what this is, is there's the tonight song, uh, which comes first. And then the quintet, um, that is kind of a reprise, I believe. Am I, am I doing the order right?
1: Yes. Maybe I'm not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but
0: they're essentially, they're kind of this, they're similar, uh, in their, sound and in their language. And so I, I'm with you like these, that and tonight are my two favorite pieces of this film and largely for the same reasons that you're talking about. Um, one of the other songs that I really liked is actually uh, one hand, one heart. And it's, it's very short, but it's because of the scene that's taking place when it's happening. Uh, it's when Tony and Maria are getting married <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or having this fake wedding and mm-hmm. one of the very, you know, very limited lyrics of this song is only death will part us now and it's it's such a uh, fore- foretelling, you know, it's foreshadowing mm-hmm. in this song. Um we knew it was coming anyway to some extent uh, at the yeah. ending. And I just I just liked the the purity of that scene between them that it's not a real wedding, um uh, that they're pretending. Um, but they're doing what they can and making mm-hmm. the best of it. And so that was kind of my favorite little lovey moment of this film.
1: Yeah, I like, the, uh, I like the beginning portion of that when they were sort of joking and talking to his parents and talking to her parents, and they were using the mannequins to, to emulate that. I thought that was really cool leading up to that song. That was really, really fun.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Any, anything else that you want to mention?
1: You know, I just, uh, just as a side note, I love the, the names of the, of the cast, all of the cast of characters, things like, uh, in particular the Jets, I just love names like Riff, Ice, Baby John, Action. I mean, I would love to be called Action. I mean, I know not I'm, calling, I'm not going to, not I, I know you action. You don't love Action, but it'd be cool to be called something like Action. And, uh, with the, with the, um, uh, cool number that those names really came out cool, you know easy baby John or easy action it just you know the the dialect and the language of the day uh made me smile uh, I think I what was it uh, riff when he was talking to Tony trying to get him to to join up at the beginning he's like hey maybe what you're looking for is gonna be twitching at the dance tonight I mean I love that line it's so much fun uh just I, I love that language it's really cool
0: I I agree I agree at times I didn't know what they were saying but I do agree I like the authenticity of it uh, yeah. One one other thing that I I did love as well at the end, um, I like that this was not your typical Romeo and Juliet ending, um, where Juliet then murders herself. I like the change up uh, that West Side Story gives it, where Rita does not do that. Uh, not Rita. Um, where Anita?
1: Maria does not do that.
0: Maria. Um okay. But I like that when when uh, she's having her breakdown. And uh, she, she basically comes out and she calls everybody out and she just tells them, she's like, hate killed all three of these guys. Uh, and then when the jets go to pick up Tony's body and a couple of the sharks come and grab them without even thinking, they just grab a grab hold of Tony's body. And there, there's this pause in this very short moment where they're frozen looking at each other and then they continue. Um, that was the kind of redemption moment uh, that I need (laughs) in a movie that's got a lot of tragedy (laughs) in it. Um, I liked seeing that a lot because it really, it showed that despite all of this stuff that's gone on, that maybe, maybe there's hope and that people could learn from this and they, they could, they could change.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if those moments were not your connecting point, I'm curious to know what yours was.
0: Well, my connecting point was everything about the gang fight scene. Um, the escalation of the gang fight scene at the Rumble. Just from the moment that they jump the fence and they start feeling each other out and getting to the point of actually ready to throw blows. Uh, I, love the, I love the way that it goes from a somewhat honorable thing uh, you know they go through this war council they they hash it out there's rules and they're very they're very particular and they're very strict about following the rules. We have to follow these rules we're not gonna do this unfairly and so they set the rules together they have this meeting and so it's it's an honorable thing it's supposed to be an honorable thing right this one on one fight, no weapons um and so they they start that out and it just As with most things, there's so much tension, so much like underlying hatred that it's fighting that I that that hatred inside them is fighting against their idealism of wanting it to be an honorable thing and wanting to do this the right way. And so ultimately, of course, knives get drawn. Um, It escalates from there. Riff is accidentally killed, I I guess you could say. I, I hesitate to use the word accidentally when you're using a knife and someone's rushing at you you should you should be aware that if that knife goes in that person's chest or or stomach like they're probably going to die uh, <laughs> so it's kind of an accident kind of not uh and then of course uh tony you know in cold blood murdering bernardo in in revenge in retaliation so it just it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating and then that culminates in you know tony turning over Bernardo's body and just, he's, he cries out Maria. And I, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I kind of was a little bit bothered by that because it's here. He is. He, he's just killed a man and and it has nothing to do with the man. It has to do with kind of his loss and her loss. And I think maybe that's supposed to be showing us Tony's love for Maria is that he's so concerned that he just killed her brother. But there's so much separation that that proves between the jets and the sharks. There's so much hatred. There's so much lack of even seeing each other as humans Mm -hmm. that he's not freaking out and and crying out Bernardo. Like, why have I just killed you Bernardo? He's screaming Maria and he knows that nothing is ever going to be the same. And, and then the next scene as this progresses, we get to see kind of what Maria was doing when this whole thing was taking place. And we see that, She was dancing on the rooftop, oblivious, completely in love. And then she finds out, you know, what's happened. And and it just, again, it's this, this idea of escalation. She's only concerned about Tony in the beginning. And and Anita is trying to tell her, no, he's killed your brother. Like, why are you worried about Tony? Your brother was in this fight. Why is your first thought not him? Um, And of course, then I said, it escalates to, a gun and and so we go from this honorable meeting to fist fighting to knives to a gun and this disconnected uh understanding of death in my opinion where we see these lovers more concerned with each other than their own kin and it's it's it it presents this interesting thing with the whole film and how the ideas of loyalty and the ideas of family um, are portrayed and so for me that whole sequence is really what connected me with this whole story the most um, and it's what I look to as the point of the film when I was like okay I I get your story now I'm bought into it it's more than just Romeo and Juliet um, it's more important than that it's bigger than that and so for me that's that's where I landed
1: very cool man my my connecting point is is a weird one at least one that i didn't expect to 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 land on because yours that you just mentioned along with the one that was almost your connecting point were definitely front runners but it's the it's the scene in the candy store like the initial one where the 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 jets and the sharks are going to have their their war council meeting and there's a conversation it, it's two pieces there's a conversation between the candy store owner and the kids and he's and he's he's saying what we mentioned earlier you know why don't you know why don't you just play basketball and he 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 makes a comment to action and he, he says you know you're or to the general group but action responds to it he talks about you know when i was your age you know we didn't do stuff like this and and action goes you know what <laughs> he basically says you know what my father when he was his age and when my grandfather was his age well you guys don't understand us you weren't you're not us when we're our age and he was basically saying you don't know what we're going through that your problems were your problems our problems are our problems and you can't relate to that because of the fact that you lived in a time before us that your your problems were different than ours that there's 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 differences here and we have to deal with them in our own way and then you see the the chief come in and dismiss the the Puerto Ricans, which by the way I love the fact that when the Puerto Ricans are leaving, they they're whistling "My Country Tis of Thee," you know, sweet land of liberty. And again, as I mentioned before, he uses the he basically belittles the the Jets at that point. He or the, the so he he kicks the Sharks out, and then he tries to convince the Jets to basically tell them where the rumble is going to be. So that he says, "I'm doing this for you guys. We're gonna put the jet, you know, put the sharks away." And then he starts getting mad because they're not cooperating with him, and he starts ripping into them and saying, uh, "I think uh, for action specifically, again, love the name, and but I love the character." He goes, "How's the action on your mom's side of the street? Action?" And this is after like two or three different things that he's trying to do to taunt some of the members to get them riled up. And what that tells what that told me and how I connected with that was the fact that, like you, that's when the Romeo and Juliet story didn't dissolve, but it became a part of something else, and that's when I really saw that these characters have depth, they have a past, they have a history, they have a reason for wanting to be who they are, and there's a sense of nobility, there's a sense of not wanting to be what your parents were or not wanting to repeat the sins of your father or mother and wanting to try to better yourself, albeit in a stereotypical bad way, by joining a gang. But we see that struggle with the Jets that even in a place like America where they're accepted as Americans, they're not accepted as people. You know, they're juvenile delinquents and they joke about it during the during the Krupke number. But at the same time, we also kind of begin to feel sympathy for them. And that's where I felt the real sympathy was in that moment where we realize these guys, these, these, these kids, that's what they are. They're kids. They're trying to make a life for themselves. And they're getting shot down because they're not being taken seriously, because they're considered juvenile delinquents. But honestly, they're just misunderstood. And they come from a place that isn't as is you know, isn't better than what they have. They're trying to actually make their lives better. And I think that that theme echoes throughout the entire cast. And, uh, and, and in that particular moment, I think it was very much, you know, hit on the head and, and, and nailed down for me.
0: Good stuff, man. Um, I like it. I think that's very true. Um, I, I agree, mostly. Mostly. I, I don't know that I fully agree, but we just will leave that for another podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as uh, whether or not, you know, they were doing whether or not there, there was an element of it's just like this for them. And uh, this is what, this is the way they have to deal with it. Uh, but we can, we can debate that at a later date mm-hmm. <laughs> offline. offline. <You laughs> can, we can have that conversation. So, it's time to plug, it's time to end, uh, wrap things up, uh, housekeeping, um, where can people find you if they want to talk about their love of your thoughts on the show or give you their own thoughts?
1: Yeah. Find me on, uh, Twitter. I'm at shoeless patch S H O E L E S S P A T C H. I'm also at, um, facebook.com slash shoeless patch. And you can hit me up on my website. Uh, ThisIsPatch.com.
0: All right. Well, for next week, we are not doing a musical. Amazing. I know. Two weeks in a (laughs) row, you thought we were singing film, didn't you?
1: It does have good music in it, though. Uh,
0: It does. I wrote that down, actually. I was going to (laughs) say something about the sound editing. We are in sync. Beat you to it. (laughs) My friend. But yes, this next film does have some incredible sound editing. Uh, Probably what I would say is the best of the year so far. Uh, This movie is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, we saw this one early in the year before we started the podcast, uh, or else we probably would have covered it in real time and done a theater pick on it, but it's time to catch up with it now. Uh, I will go ahead and give you a little bit of a sneak peek and tell you it is my number one film of 2016 still, uh, as, as of this moment. So I really love this one. You're going to get to hear me gush about it. Uh, and Patrick may not quite feel the same way, so <laughs> should make for an interesting conversation.
1: It will definitely make for good conversation. Uh,
0: another thing I wanted to mention is this past week I had the opportunity to guest host on the Cinescope podcast. Uh, that's C-I-N-E-S-C-O-P-E. Cinescope. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at Cinescope Pod. Uh, you can also find them on Facebook, and he's everywhere. He's on iTunes, uh, everywhere you can imagine. He has a website as well, but Google and look up Cinescope podcast. I got to talk about Blade Runner, which is one of my favorite films of all time, and I, Chad was awesome, it was a really good conversation we got to have about the movie. Chad's podcast, Cinescope, is very similar to ours in that it celebrates the best aspects of film. Uh, he does kind of topically, he talks about characters and story and music, uh, and his show has on guest hosts who pick their favorite movies to discuss. So they're always talking about a movie that they really enjoy, not necessarily movies that they don't like. And so they're a lot like us. They, they give it an honest opinion, but then they focus on the positive stuff. And I really enjoy his show. It was an honor to be on it. So I hope that you'll all go listen to that. It was a very fun talk. And like I said, it's the only time I've ever gotten a podcast on Blade Runner. So I was geeking out. <laughs>
1: Very cool, man. I just want to throw in a real quick recommendation. I mentioned earlier in the show the uh, the book "Something's Coming." It's actually the the full the I can't remember the full name of it, but um, it's uh, something. i oh, sorry, it's "Something's Coming." Something good, West Side Story, and the American Imagination. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, there's a used a slew of used books that are for like dirt cheap, like forty five cents to three dollars to four dollars or whatever. So I would highly recommend it. It's a it's a good book. Again, if you want to look at the kind of the breakdown of the movie, if if you're a fan like me, it's it's worth checking out. So uh, so check it out on Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. You know all your all your famous online retailers for books and such.
0: Cool. Well, if you want to go look that one up, and last, you can find me online if you want to hit me up at Aaron L White. A R A A R O N E L W H I T E. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere you can search that name. I'm there. Uh, also, the show, the Twitter, Feel Film, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, Facebook, the Facebook group we've already mentioned, and last but not least, another plug, get in the Fantasy Movie League. You've only got a handful of days. Get signed up. Join it. Compete. It's a lot of fun. Smack Talk has been going on, and uh, it's a great challenge. It's, it's a lot harder than you, it looks or than you may it-
1: think. And, and just for posterity, I will turn on my email notifications that tell me when to make my picks so that I won't be absent this go-around. I apologize for that. That was slightly unintentional for me to just completely bail out on the summer movie picks. So I apologize.
0: Sounds good. It'll be good to have you in there and see how you do. Well, for us, that's it for this episode. So until next time, stay positive.
1: And keep feeling film.